Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and that in your word we know you better. And we pray that you might teach us tonight more about love, the love of the Father, the depth of your love for us in Jesus, so that we might understand love and we might show love now and into eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like to live in a world without love. It's fairly hard to imagine it, isn't it? And that's because the idea of being kind to others is just kind of part of our everyday fabric, at least to a point. Because whilst we give lip service to love, it's still something that's pretty unnatural. And that's because it's impossible not to think about ourselves. We are, by nature, self-focused. It's like when you see a slideshow at a funeral and you keep looking for yourself in the photos. Or when someone writes a long thank you letter to an organisation and you scan it to see if your name's in it. Or you find out the results of an assessment or a competition and you look for your name and just how many people you're ahead of in the list. Whether it's a competition or a celebration or a funeral, we can't stop thinking about ourselves. And by the way, I think this is why capitalism seems to work so well. It assumes that all of us are greedy and self-centred, which is ultimately true. Now, it's disastrous when it doesn't have a safety net, although even as I say that, that is assuming the fact that it's good to be loving. Because if love's not a thing, then it's actually much better that I'm richer and you're poorer. Imagine a world without love. I think we do deep down think that it is good to be loving. We encourage each other to be kind and to be other person-centred. But in a sense, we're fighting a losing battle because we're all selfish by nature. Each of us looks out for our own needs not for the needs of others. But that's, of course, never the case in the church, right? Well, sadly, that's not right, is it? We don't always look out for other needs above ourselves. We don't always look out for others to be better than us. The truth is that every one of us, every church is selfish, selfish when it comes to wanting better spiritual gifts than others. Now, I didn't choose this passage because I think our church is really unloving and needs to be more loving because we're really bad at it. I chose this passage because it's the one after the one before, which is after the one before that as we go through 1 Corinthians 13. But nonetheless, what we see is a lesson that is important for us all. But the context is that it's written to a bunch of Christians in Corinth, in Greece. And these Corinthians wanted special spiritual gifts. These guys were in a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul himself, the Apostle, the guy who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. And yet even those guys were acting in a selfish way. You'd think that this all-new church 
by this church planting guru would be awesome. But no, it was in a mess. And so that's why we have this letter in our Bibles. And in the end, that's actually a good thing. It's good that they were such a dysfunctional church because we end up with the letter to the Corinthians, the first one and the second one. And God speaks to us and blesses us through the reading of that. But what was it that was wrong with their church? What were the problems? Well, they weren't unified. In fact, they were very divided. They were jealous of each other. They showed favoritism to the rich and powerful. They tolerated sexual immorality. They took each other to court. They used their spiritual freedoms to offend weak believers. They gave into the temptation to worship idols. They ignored the gender differences in marriage and worship and life. They were being selfish and rude when celebrating the Lord's Supper. And to top it all off, they were clambering for special spiritual gifts like they were golden tickets. The Corinthian church was a mess. And so you can see why it is that Paul wrote in the chapter we looked at last week that they need to stop giving preferential treatment to some people over others. And they themselves shouldn't be seeking to have special spiritual gifts that would impress other people. They shouldn't be bringing the worldliness of the world into the sacred heart of the church. But that's exactly what they were doing. And so we saw in the chapter before, verse 7, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. That's why we have them. And then he said in verse 27, All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. There's no room to be off on your own, thinking you're better than others. And then after listing a whole lot of other parts that the Lord has appointed to the church, he ended the chapter by saying these verses from 29 onwards. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. The problem was that these guys have been clambering for spiritual gifts like their tickets to Taylor Swift. But they've completely missed the point. And with that comes one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible. It's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's famous because it's probably the most popular chapter of the Bible to read out at a wedding. And you can see why. It's got all this nice stuff about love. Love is patient and kind. Love never gives up. Love will last forever. The greatest of these is love. It's a lovely chapter. In fact, if you do a Google search, you'll see all these different ways in which you can get those verses onto merchandise. There are mugs, there are tea coasters, there's everything you can possibly imagine. It's a very, very famous chapter and it's a lovely chapter and it's a lovely chapter to read out at a wedding. But we need to see that this chapter was written to a selfish church 
an immoral church, a jealous church, a worldly church, a self-focused church. And this was written to be a kind of medicine that might maybe cure their critical illness. It doesn't mean that it's not a good chapter on love. And if you did have it at your wedding, then you were so blessed as were those who heard it. It's a wonderful chapter. But we need, as we look at it today, see that it's a chapter that's written to broken people who are in a broken church. And with that in mind, we turn to chapter 13. And it starts off with five what-ifs. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Let me summarise them. What if I could speak every language? What if I had the gift of prophesying and understanding mysteries? What if I had massive faith? You know, what if I was extremely generous? What if I sacrificed even my life? You know, these five one ifs, uh, what ifs almost describe the super Christian. Someone all of these Corinthians would have loved to have been like. I mean, how good would it have been to have all of those boxes ticked? They would love all those impressive things, love all of those impressive gifts. And they are pretty impressive. Because if you had someone who could tick all of those boxes, you would say, you're an awesome Christian. And in a sense, they would be. But... They wouldn't be if they didn't have love. And that's the point of all of this. Doesn't matter how gifted they are behind a microphone. Doesn't matter how generous they are. All these sort of super Christian traits are irrelevant if you don't have love. And so we look at those five one ifs now. What ifs? Starting with verse one. Famously, it says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others... I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul asked the question, what if he spoke all the languages? What if he spoke all the languages? And that would be an amazing thing to do. And it was the gift that they seemed to want to have above all the other ones. But he said, if he could speak all those foreign languages and yet didn't have love, it would be as though every time he spoke, it was like one of those annoying car alarms. It's like just this noise that's annoying. Or, or the sound of a car crash. Or the sound of a big bang in the night. It's like, it's, it's not a nice sound to hear. And in fact, it's not an intelligible sound. It's not a sound that actually makes sense. It just has this horrible noise. Doesn't matter how impressive the speaking is. Without love, it's offensive. Or verse 2a. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, he's basically saying, what if Paul was like an Old Testament prophet? You know, a guy who was able to bring the very word of God like Isaiah did or, or to interpret things like Daniel did when he did those dreams. They'd be amazing things, you'd say. Uh, or, or verse 2b, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. Enormous faith, impressive faith. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. This amazing faith would be incredible. It's a kind of an Old Testament super prophet, dream interpreter kind of person. 
And you'd say you were a super Christian, but if you didn't have love, you're just taking up space. You're just nothing. No matter how special, you're nothing without love. And then thirdly, verse 3, he says, If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. You know, what if Paul was super generous? You know, like a super philanthropist, you know, Bill Gates or, or in Australia, Twiggy Forrest. You'd say, you're an amazing Christian. What a wonderful Christian. I want to follow you. And you're doing these amazing, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they have no love, they're nothing. I reckon if I was in the church of Corinth and I was reading this letter or having it read to me, I would take offense at this. Because it really is challenging what I as a Corinthian would have considered to be valuable. And in all of this, the Apostle Paul was saying to them, all of this is nothing if they don't have love. Now that was to them, but what about us? How does it challenge the way that you look at others? How does, the way, how does it challenge the way that you look at yourself? It says that it doesn't matter how impressive you are or whether people say, whoa, did you see her or him or whatever? All of that is shallow nothingness if love is not at the core. And so for the people in Corinth, it would have been saying to them, don't aspire to these special gifts. You've got to aspire to being loving. But what is love like? Well, let me read out verses 4 to 7 and then I have a look at it in a bit more detail. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. It's a long and lovely list about love. And at first glance, it's really positive about how to be nice and loving. But at the same time, it's a pretty powerful rebuke of these people who were living there at Corinth. You see, on one hand, it's aspirational. It's kind of like, yeah, I want to aspire to be like that. But on the other hand, it, it's quite correctional. It's helping them see just how wrong they have become. Let's have a bit of a look at each of these points. Firstly, love is patient. Uh, love is patient because God is patient. This verse appears in a number of times in the Bible, but in Psalm 145, 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, that's the patient bit, and filled with unfailing love. Patience and love, hand in glove. Can you see that together? The Lord is slowly, slow to get angry. He doesn't react straight away when we offend him. He is patient with us. That is what love is like, and it's what our love should be like. You see, if we are loving like God is loving, we will put up with people who disappoint us, and we won't just cut them off straight away. 
We will wait and we will pray for God to lead them to repentance and to grow in godliness. We will be patient and patient and patient. Next, we see that love is kind. It's another attribute of God. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says, But when God our Saviour revealed his two things, his kindness and his love, he saved us. Uh, Jesus is kind, and that's because Jesus is loving. What does kindness look like? Well, it's compassion. It's mercy. You see someone suffering, you show them care. And that's what we want to see lots of in the church, kindness and compassion. And I see this, and sometimes I don't see it, but I kind of just hear murmurings around the traps that it's happening. And what a joy it is when I hear that and see that. And what a joy it is when you have experienced it firsthand. I still remember years ago when COVID was full on and we had it and it was locked down and all that kind of stuff and someone just dropped around a meal. I thought, it's just a meal. I don't know, what is it? Is it, is it magic? Is there some sort of fairy dust that happens when someone brings you a meal around your house when you're sick? It's just beautiful. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? See, that is kindness. That is love. What about love? Well, we see that love is not Jealous. Well, we're about to see a whole lot of list of things that it's not. Okay, we had a couple of positives, and now here's the not, 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 not. Um, it's interesting to hear the word jealous used here because you think, well, God is patient, God is kind, God is not jealous. Oh, hang on. Didn't God say, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God? He did, didn't he? Oh, okay. It must be a good kind of jealous. Oh, there must be a bad kind of jealous. This is the bad kind of jealous. This is the envy kind of jealous. It's the jealousy that says, I will act in a particular kind of way uh, because I want to be able to have what somebody else has got. You know, it might be a jealousy over a leadership position or a special position of privilege or something like that. Uh, envy is incompatible with love. It's not loving to look at someone else's gifts and, con and contributions and just be thinking, wish I could do that. I wish that was me, not them. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. If you're loving, then you won't be a show-off when you're serving. You know, I, I think it's hard not to boast a little bit when you're doing something good. And I think one of the sneakiest ways to do that today is through social media. It's kind of like, oh, I'll go and do something special for the community. A quick little subtle selfie. It's like, oh, it's just nice for them to know that I'm doing things. And you think, it's not like all of the good is suddenly gone because you've boasted about it. But, you know, it's, you can't be doing something for the sake of others at the same time as be thinking about doing it for your sake. Love is not proud. It's similar to being boastful, but it's, it's kind of a bit more like a feeling of being puffed up. It's kind of like, I'm loving others and, you know, it's making me feel good. You see, if loving others is something you do to improve your self-worth, your self-identity comes from what you're doing out of love, then you're not acting out of love, are you? You're trying to feel better about yourself by making a, a sick person a meal or helping out in a particular way or having a chat and a conversation on the phone with someone. You're thinking, I'm doing this because it's making me feel good. Love is not proud. And love is not rude. 
this translation here, rude, is right, but it's not rude as in saying a rude thing to you, like being aggressive towards you. It's kind of the rude as in indecent, as being shameful. And you think, how do they go together? Well, there are a few examples in this letter to the church at Corinth where they have been shameful and it's almost as though they have allowed people to do shameful, indecent things because they kind of wanted to be loving towards them. But it's not loving to be doing shameful things, to be doing rude things. You know, in our society today, there's such a blurred line between decent and indecent. Our world has become so sexualized, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. And we find ourselves sometimes like we're at, we've been drifting into this place. We think, oh, well, how am I here? Love is not rude. And love doesn't demand its own way. How can you be loving when you're also seeking your own good? You're demanding your own rights. You know, imagine if Jesus was about to be crucified and he said, hang on, I demand to be set free. Take me to your manager. You know, it's kind of, imagine if all the times when he actually could have stood up for himself and demanded what was fair and what was right, demanded what could have come about being the king if he really tried to pull his weight, push his weight around. But he didn't demand his own way, and nor should we if we are showing love. Next, love is not irritable. You know, it doesn't get easily angered. You know, it's like when you just a little bit irritable, like there's a few things and just a few things in a row just really make you grumpy, like you're driving here to church and someone pulls out in front of you and then suddenly you, 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 you do something and then that happens and, and then you get here and, and everyone realises it and then you've got to walk around you with tender kind of, you know, like you're walking on eggshells and um, that's not a good place to be in, is it? And if you're serving regularly doing a thing that's loving and yet it's clear to everybody that you're just a bit irritated by about the fact that you've got to do it, it's not such a good look. I know I've done that far too many times and I'm sorry for that. It's easy to be irritable, isn't it? But love is not irritable. Next, love keeps no record of wrongs. How many times have Christians annoyed you? How many times have unbelievers annoyed you? How many have people annoyed you? you? You think, okay, how many times have people done things to wrong you? Well, if you're the kind of person who can say, oh, I can tell you, you pull out a diary, it's at 38 and a half times. It's like, well, you keep records of wrongs, don't you? But you may not actually write it down, but you still know. You still know how many times you have tried to help, but you've been hit in the face and you think, oh, I'm just a bit over this. But what if every time you were wronged, it was like it was the first time? Like you didn't think about the impact of being wronged or the consequences of serving. I can think of somebody who did just that. 2 Corinthians 5.18 tells us that all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Here it is. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Isn't, you want to see what love is like? It's when you do something that hurts God 
And yet God doesn't write it down. He doesn't remember it. Almost to the point where you say, oh dear God, I'm so sorry for what I did against you yesterday. And it's almost like he says, huh, what did you do yesterday? That's grace, isn't it? That's forgiveness. That's love. And love rejoices in truth and justice. Love loves when truth is in a community. You know, dishonesty and lying will wreck a community very, very quickly. When my pager goes off and I race down to the, 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 uh, the brigade station for the rural fire service, we just throw our belongings somewhere in the room, you know, before we go out in the trucks, our keys and our wallet and whatever it is, and we just know in the brigade that you can trust each other. We're there for each other. And I haven't heard of this happening because we've got a great brigade. I love my brigade. But let's imagine you turn back from hosing down someone's house and you find that someone's nicked money out of your wallet or you can't find your keys or stuff's gone missing out of your bag. Imagine what that would be like. The whole place with one person's act would suddenly be, would just have this horrible feeling of lack of trust. That's not what love is like. Love rejoices in truth and justice. And then finally, verse 7, there's, there's four, I'll put them all together. Love never gives up, love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and love endures through every circumstance. All those four are kind of together in different ways, but the bottom line is love endures. Love perseveres. Love remains in faith. And hope. It's grounded in the future. This is what true love is like. Love is love that looks forward to the age that is to come. And all that comes from trusting in Jesus. That's the faith. And having hope in his promises. That's the hope. Because in the end, love is future focused. And this is a very important point that we want to hear tonight. It's about present faith in the finished work of Christ and it's about a future hope in the life that is to come. But all of that points us to love. That is the very foundation of our love. And that's what the rest of this chapter talks about. And I'm going to speed up a bit as we come near the end. Because we read in verse 8, prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. It's like, ooh, ouch. You know, what did the Corinthians love? They loved this stuff. Prophecy, speaking in special languages, special knowledge. They love all that stuff. And he says, guess what? It's all going to fade away. It's all going to burn up. It's not significant. The stuff that you love now really means nothing because love... That's the thing that will last forever. Because you don't need prophecy and special languages when you're face-to-face -face with Jesus. And it's true of our present knowledge as well, verses 9 and 10. Now our knowledge, now, it's partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things become useless. You love to have the special knowledge of God. 
all this really amazing stuff from prophecy and all this. It's like, listen, you've got your heart in the wrong spot. That's all going to go away. Love is what will endure. Because in the end, these special gifts won't be needed in the future. It's silly to focus on them so much when in the future they're not needed. And to emphasise this, we read in verse 11 and 12. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial, is incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. You see, we are limited in what we can see and know about the life that is to come. The only thing we know about that has come from the Holy Spirit who shows us and teaches us by God's word. But the time is coming when all that won't be needed because we'll be face to face with God, face to face with Jesus in the very presence of him in every single way when we will know everything completely just as God now knows you and me completely. And this Future perspective changes everything when it comes to love. See, if we really have our eyes on eternity, then it will change what we love. We will change our loves when we look to eternity. We'll change our loves when we look to eternity. But our problem is that we're so drugged by idolatry that we lose sight of where we're going and how we're getting there. Imagine in a couple of weeks' time you're going off on an overseas trip and you're telling everybody, I just can't wait to get on the plane. Let me tell you what the food's going to be like. Apparently there's this kind of chicken thing we're going to have. Ooh, And let me tell you about the movies we're going to watch. It's going to be great. And, and then we'll just... Sit there and, and it'll be terrific. 600 people sharing six toilets. It'll be fantastic. I can't wait. It'll be terrific. I don't want to get off the plane. You think, okay. Well, what, where are you actually flying to? Nah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? Do you have, you got an idea? Oh, no, no, I'm just excited to be on the plane. And when I get on the plane, I'm just going to sit there and, and I just really hope that that little plane on the map goes really, really slowly because I want to spend as much possible time in that long-haul flight as I can because I just love the flight. I don't care about what happens next. Now, I'll be honest, I do kind of like flying and I like the little meals, the little rolls and things like that. But the point is it's not actually a, why you fly on a plane, right? You don't like fly out for a day and then they turn around and they land back in Sydney. You think, wow, what a trip. I've got jet lag. And I've travelled zero kilometres. You know, why? You know, it's all about the destination. It's all about the future. It's all about well, where we're going. But we can spend so much of our time thinking about the plane trip, about this temporary time where certain things are very important to us right now, like, like, like whether or not there's a queue to the toilet and an aisle five in the plane. You know, that's always... But really, that's not important at all. It's all about the destination. 
we've got to think about the future. We've got to be future focused. And when we're like that, it will change our love and it'll change what we love. And it's with all of that in mind, we get to possibly the most famous verse of the whole chapter. These things, three things will last forever. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, why do they last forever? Why do these three things remain forever? It's because these three things remain into eternity. Everything else will fade away. Only faith, hope and love will last forever. Faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Hope in his coming and his eternal reign. And above all, love. Love that lasts eternally. Love that comes from God. Love that is God. This is what love is really like. It's the love of Jesus that brings us reconciliation, friendship with God. And it's our love for each other that, that transcends time. Because the love you show today is love that will last into eternity. For the love that is true love points people to eternity. It points people to Jesus. True love points people to Jesus. Which is nothing like the love that our world talks about. And to be honest, it's not much like the love that people speak about a lot at weddings either, even when they read 1 Corinthians 13. Because it's not ultimately about being patient and kind, as important as these things are. Ultimately, it's about loving people so that they will know the love of Jesus and so that they will experience that love for eternity because when we have genuine faith and genuine hope then we will know genuine love true love love that remains forever love that is the greatest love of all we're going to sing a song that is not specifically about love but is a song that is about being future focused and it's a prayer. It's a prayer to the Lord God. Be thou my vision. <laughs>